Richards Bowie Versus Tillian Is this year when I'm glowy Am I killing? I hope it's not a blowy Or a villain A very special tenth episode of Boy vs. Dylan, which we mark as a minor triumph and are doing something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I'm Charlie and I like Bowie. I'm Jake and I love Dylan. So, normally on a normal podcast, we pick out a year, we put our guys into the ring for a no holds bar bare knuckle battle to the death, or, you know, see who has more points in our weird point system. See who did more points. episode, we're shaking things up just a little bit. There will be no official winner, although Bowie is always the winner in my heart. Dylan wins. Okay. Uh, but instead, we're going to take a look at a different facet of our gentlemen's careers, and that is the incredible range of myriad famous collaborators they've encountered through their many years. Uh, so we're going to take a look at some of their top most Notable, and I say notable because some of them are not good collaborations. <laughs> Correct, but they're still interesting and notable collaborations. So we're kind of combining them all together into one. Now, the other point on this is these are collaborators who are, are famous in their own right. So, like we've talked about our old pal Mick Ronson mm, on numerous Mick. occasions. Boy, old Mick. Mick is a very, very important part of particularly Bowie's career, but also Dylan's career. <laughs> Briefly, but he's not. Famous in his own right. So maybe we'll do a, a, a separate, maybe we'll do one, you know, down the road later on. Maybe it'll be our 20th episode or something. We can talk about collaborate, important collaborators who are not famous in their own right. Yes. All these guys on, and ladies are famous on their own. And it's just interesting that at some point they worked with Bowie and Dylan. So we're going to get this down. We're going to end up going down to a top 10. But before we get to our top 10s, uh, we're going to start with some honorable and dishonorable mentions. Absolutely. Uh, just some quick people you may have had no idea they ever worked with, Bowie or Dylan. So, Jake, you kick things off with your honorable and dishonorable mentions. Take it away. I will. I'm going to throw some names at you, Chaz, and a podcast right. audience. This is just I'm going to catch those names. This is a bunch of names. These are, I guess we're going to call them honorable mentions. I'll get to the dishonorable mentions at the end. Um, I'm just going to say some names here. Sam Shepard. The famous playwright. Jacques Levy, play producer. He's probably number 11 on the list, actually. Okay. Uh, Mick Taylor, former guitarist for the Rolling Stones. Nice Mick. Don't. That's a nice Mick. Strong Mick. Robert Hunter of The Grateful Dead. Roy Orbison of Roy Orbison. Jeff Lynn uh, worked on Traveling Wilburys with him. Harry Belafonte. In Dylan's early career, he played on a song with him. Roger McGuinn of The Birds with a Y. Mark Knopfler, Dire Straits, and producer of the 1983 album Infidels. (laughs) T-Bone Burnett, who played on the Rolling Thunder tour with Bob and also went on to great fame as a producer of soundtracks like Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Okay. Bette Midler, remember her. (laughs) How did you forget? Eric Clapton. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> you too. He was on there. He co-wrote a song called Love Rescue Me uh, with them on that 
really bad live album they did right after Joshua Tree. What's that called? Oh, Rattle and Hum. Okay. Uh, Willie Nelson, who somehow didn't make the list. I'm not sure how he didn't make the list. Well, he know. didn't collaborate with them enough, probably. Uh, Ron Wood, again, of the Rolling Stones. Uh, let's see here. Who else? Oh, Pete Seeger, of course. Uh, all the famous folk people in the beginning of his career were there. All right. And then um, there were... Oh, nope, I can't say that yet. I just have so many names. I tried to go back. <laughs> there's just so many. I tried there's to go so back many. and look at all the people that he was in a concert with, and I became instantly overwhelmed, and I passed out. It's like, I can't I can't do it, man. I, I just wrote down a few. There's Neil Young, Lou Reed, Pearl Jam, Stevie Wonder, Jeff Tweedy, My Morning Jacket, Joni Mitchell. Uh, he had two big concerts with a lot of people. One was the concert for Bangladesh. Mick Jagger was there. And then there was a third. Another Mick. There was another Mick. Uh, one of the biggest, probably the biggest Mick, right? He's got to be the biggest Mick. He's got to be Mick number There's one. There's none Mick bigger than Mick Jagger. <laughs> He's the Mickest of the He's Mick's. the Mickest. He is the absolute Mickest. And then uh, Dylan did a 30th, well, they kind of forced foisted it upon him, but he was there anyway. It was a 30th anniversary special concert at Madison Square Garden for Bob Dylan. He doesn't like... <laughs> did he even know he was going? Well, he may. Like, uh, hey, Bob, we're I going think... to dinner. They just put him in the car. And <laughs> it's like grab your guitar, Bob. You might need it. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, like literally every luminous, uh, you know, rock star from past and present was at this thing, and I just literally everyone except for David Bowie. I don't know why. Why, why wasn't he? You cut deep. Ouch, man. I don't know why he wasn't there. It seemed like something he would have done for sure. And uh, they just had everybody there, so I'm not even going to bother listening or listening okay. to those names. I have. A really fun multiple choice question for you, Chaz, for my dishonorable mentions section. You're gonna, Lay it on me. You're going to like this. Okay. The answer is all of the above. The answer is not all of the above in this case. Okay. okay. Now listen. I'm going to list five names. One of them, Bob Dylan did not work with. And okay. by And by work with, I mean co-wrote a song or was <laughs> on a song with this person. Okay. Okay. So this isn't just like, oh, appeared on stage once with them. Bob Dylan right. actually sat down and co-wrote a song with all of these people, except okay. for one. And I want, you, I want you to pick out which one you think did not write a song with Bob Dylan. Get ready. This is awesome. I'm, re- I'm ready. All right. A, Michael Bolton. B, this is tough already. Gene Simmons, formerly of Kiss. <laughs> On, okay, I can't tell you. C, John Bon Jovi of Bon Jovi. D, Curtis Blow, an early 80s pioneering rapper. Or E, Eric Clapton, previously mentioned. What do you got? I'm going to go with Eric Clapton because this is the one that would be the most obvious collaboration. No chess. <laughs> the answer is John Bon Jovi. Oh, Okay. Bob Dylan co-wrote a song in the presence of Michael Bolton called... (laughs) Oh, no. Did I not write it down? Where is it? (gasps) I'm so mad. Oh, called Steel Bars. Yes. (laughs) It was on Michael Bolton's Smash 1991 album, which I did not bother to remember the name of. Who cares? (laughs) But it was a smash. It was... Well, it was a smash album. I don't think the song was a smash, but there is a a proper video for it. It is just the worst. It's so bad. (laughs) Uh, he co-wrote a song with Gene Simmons um, for like a mid-2000s album that Gene Simmons titled A-Hole. 
That was the name of the album. Was it A-Hole with B-Hole Sir Rain? Uh, no, it was just A-Hole. Just A-Hole. And he's like on the cover, not Bob, obviously, Gene is on the cover with a whole bunch of like hot models on this cover. It's just the, well, yeah. it's, it's even worse than Michael Bolton. Just terrible. <laughs> um, he did a rap with Curtis Blow. I tried to translate this rap um, and I could not, I could not even get close to fi- figuring out what it was that Bob Dylan said. He raps for about 10 seconds at the beginning of this nine-minute oh, rap epic, and since we don't have the rights to I anything, I can't play it. I still want to find those, you know. I know you've, men- you've mentioned that he just seemed like he was poised to actually do a rap album at I some know, point. I know, I wonder. If, I'm just wondering if there's some demos out there. Everyone wonders rapping, if you did. I just want to know. I want to see it. Listen, I want to see it happen, Jake. Bob Dylan rapping is like a beautiful unicorn. <laughs> you just you <laughs> see it once. You see it once and you can't. A variety of uh, trade magazines all over themselves to talk about how vital it was. <laughs> you're never the same when you hear Bob Dylan rap. I just want you to know. <laughs> Rediscovering uh-huh. whatever it was. And then Eric Clapton, he co-wrote a song called Sign Language with him on one of that one. That one I can see. Like oh yeah, that makes sense. I had know, to, I had to throw a sense. fifth name in there to kind of throw you off, but he never did work with uh, John Bon Jovi. Successfully threw me off. I just couldn't believe. I what's more unbelievable, Michael Bolton or or post kiss Gene Simmons? <laughs> Michael Bolton. Michael Bolton. That's what I think too. Yeah. But the both are both are ridiculous. They're ridiculous. All right. All right. Well, dishonorably, dishonorably, I hand the reins to you, sir. All right. We kind of structured our our honorable and dishonorable mentions differently, so I'm just going to go. Just go. So a few choice people that Bowie has just performed on stage with at some point. We got Jeff Beck. Yeah. Share. Yeah. Annie Lennox Ooh, doing under pressure at the Freddie Mercury uh, Memorial concert. Oh, that sounds awesome, actually. He did. Yeah, she did. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. I actually. love Annie. She Lennox. did Freddie Mercury's part. Frank Black of the Pixies. Uh huh. Robert Smith of the Cure. Yeah. All of Sonic Youth. <laughs> All of them. Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins. What? Who? David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. Yeah, heard of him. And in his final live performance, he performed with Alicia Keys for some reason. <laughs> Great. Keep it relevant. All right. We got some people who have remixed, and I didn't use include everybody in the live or in the remix who, who uh, later on did something else. Uh, we have several people, luminaries, who have remixed Bowie, including Pet Shop Boys, Air, Beck, Moby, mm. uh, did it twice. Uh, he has done guest vocals on a single by Placebo called Without You, I'm wow. Nothing. Wow. And more commonly called, I don't know, more commonly, more, I don't know. It's referred to as Pussy Bowie, which is kind of <laughs> irritating. That's horrible. But worth noting. He did guest vocals on TV on the radio's 2006 album Return to Cookie Mountain. Yes, I did that He did guest one. vocals on Scarlett Johansson's 2008, which actually it is a good album, even though it's by an actress and most actor and actor actress. Yeah, she's all right. Her 2008 album, Anywhere I Lay My Head, it, largely because it featured like half the members of TV on the radio and half the members of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Yeah, those are good bands. Covers of Tom Waits. So that combination actually worked. Uh, guest vocals on his, or guest, guests on his own albums. Tom Verlaine of television, guested mm. on Scary Monsters in 1980, mm-hmm. on a song, Kingdom Come, that he actually wrote. Wow. Lenny Kravitz lays down some <laughs> sweet guitar on Buddha of Suburbia from 1993. Hey. Dave Grohl of Nirvana and the Foo Fighters does guitar on I've Been Waiting for You from Heathen in 2002, and also they did perform live together. Okay. 
Pete Townsend of a little band called The Who. The Who? Just guitars Who? on Who? Because You're Young from Scary Monsters in 1980 and Slow Burn from Heathen in 2002. Oh, collaborator heavy. That's right. James Murphy of LCD Sound System did a remix of Love is Lost in 2013 and also did some drumming on two tracks on Black Star from 2016. Robert Fripp of King Crimson yeah. was the lead guitarist on 1977's Heroes, a rather gigantic album, and mm. again, 1980's Scary Monsters, which apparently had all kinds of guests. Jimmy Page of a little band called Led Zeppelin. I'd never heard of is on Is on Bowie's second single, I Pity the Fool. Wow. He was still, he wasn't even Bowie yet, he was still Jones, uh, in, in a band called The Managed Boys. He was a session musician, and he yeah. happened to play guitar there. Yeah, that's right. That was Fun the fact on that one, he gave Bowie a guitar riff that he didn't know what to do with, that Bowie subsequently used in two songs, one from 1970 and one from 1997. <laughs> Great. Philip Glass. Whoa. We had a few weirder collaborations here. They had multiple live collaborations. They did one in 1979, and they did several right around 2000, 2002. And then, uh, notably, Philip Glass has done two symphonies based on Bowie albums. His first symphony was based on 1977's Low. Really? And his fourth symphony is based on 1977's Heroes. Okay. And his whatever symphony he's up to, his next symphony, which is set to be released next year, is based on 1979's Lodger. Well, okay. Fruitful. There you go. Very fruitful. Peter Frampton. Yes. <laughs> yes. Played guitar all over Bowie's generally considered worst album, Never Let Me Down, from 1987. Yeah, there is a reason for that. It's a bad one. It's, and it's Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton contributed. <laughs> Uh, he also toured with them for that tour. And, fun fact, they went to school together. Like, they went to high school together. Really? Bowie and Peter Frampton. What? Yeah. That's true. That's crazy. Uh, Massive Attack. They did a song together for the Moulin Rouge soundtrack. Mm. Lay it down. Queen Latifah. <laughs> in 1990. <laughs> this is getting Bowie, ridiculous. for some reason, <laughs> chose to release a new version of one of his biggest hits, Fame. Oh. And he got a million remixes. Fame 90? Is that what it's called? Not Fame 90, yeah. Yeah, that's on one of my and, best ofs for some reason. Well, it's, I gave you, a, it's at my worst at Bowie mix. Oh, there we go. <laughs> oh, no, you have a best of that has it on it, too. Well, I have, um, I have the singles collection from 69 to 93, I think. It's like a double disc, yeah. so that would have been on there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it's on It's there. not really a best of, I guess. Anyway, Queen Latifah raps over one of the versions of Fame 90. As she as she's wont to do. <laughs> want to do. Uh, Luther Vandross co-wrote a song on Young Americans in 1975. Yeah. Oh. oh, we basically discovered it. Luther that's Vandross, right. All these last three really came close to making the top ten. But I was going to say it. that's got to be getting top ten-ish. It's top ten-ish. Yeah, Bowie basically discovered Luther Vandross, put him on Young Americans. He co-wrote one of the songs in there, which by co-wrote I mean he wrote the song and then Bowie took parts of it with his permission and changed it into his own song. Uh, Arcade Fire. Mm. Bowie and Arcade Fire released a live EP together in 2005. Oh, I didn't know that. A three-track EP of them performing together. They did, I think, two Bowie songs and one Arcade Fire song. And they Bowie also does guest vocals on the lead track from their 2013 album, Reflector. Right. Okay. And our last one that just barely didn't make the top ten is a Nick. It's Mickey Rourke. <laughs> That's right. The actor, Mickey Rourke. Raps oh, on the song boy. "Shining Star," "Naked My Love" from 1987's <laughs> "Never Let Me Down." That sounds like a great it hurt, album. It hurt me inside to not make that one the top ten, but I just couldn't do it. No, 
I can see why. That one's been that one's on my worst stuff too, but it's not it's not actually as bad. It's not the worst song in the album by a long shot. I gotta say that it's just so crazy. Wow, that, you know, that's ins- that's really intense. So did Bowie ever go. did Bowie ever oh. consciously rap himself? Not to my knowledge. Okay. It's something I could kind of see happening for him too. You know, I know I can. Like I can to do too. The next, the next thing. Well, I mean, he took. You know, he wasn't afraid of like taking. You know, major steps into black music. He oh no, of course made, not. He made soul albums. You know, he right. did that. He's one of the only white performers to ever make it on Soul Train. Look, he discovered Luther Vandross. I mean, that's he all. He discovered Luther Vandross. For goodness' sake. <laughs> for Pete's sake. For Pete's sake. Come on. For Come Pete's on, everybody. Sake. Come on. I'm just surprised that some at some point, you know, during those flailing eighties, late eighties, early nineties <laughs> years, that he didn't just try to rap. He he clearly was in the rap world at least a little. He was well. He was trying to go for grudge instead of a tin machine. Yeah. Well, I think that's the better choice, personally. But you know, that's hard to say because we have tin machine and it's awful. We don't have his rapping, which would have also been awful, but might have been less awful. I think it would have been more fun to talk about, probably. <laughs> well, tin is pretty fun to talk about. Like talking about Bob Dylan rapping is the great joy of my day right now. <laughs> Oh man, it makes me happy. <laughs> Doesn't it? Oh, I really wish I could have understood what he was saying so I could have wrapped it back to you. I couldn't I couldn't even find the <laughs> lyrics online. Like this should be archived in. <laughs> Is it like that? It's kinda of like it starts like this. I I got the first line. I'm in Delegia knowledge of the scan of the encyclopedia. Or something like that. <laughs> and then he starts about the media. The encyclopedia made it into his rap. Yeah, and then it talks about the media and then something else that rhymes. Oh, do you write encyclopedia with media? Well, Absolutely. Done. Well done. What are you kidding me? Of course he did. <laughs> and then Curtis Blow just goes on this, like, ni- literal nine-minute song, um, rap uh-huh. song, you know, with all these, like, ricky, 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 and, like, all these crazy early early rap sounds. And then uh-huh. he, uh, he mixes in. He forces you to listen to the entire song, because I think that Dylan's just going to start rapping again. So I listened to the entire <laughs> thing. And he kind of mixes in some samples of Dylan's rapping at the end, like, in the last 30 seconds. It's kind of, it's kind <laughs> of cruel. the earlier time in the same song. It's oh, kind of cruel. Uh, <laughs> you know, he made me, he made me do it. They both did. <laughs> Thanks, Curtis Blow. Thanks, Bob Brown. Those are nine minutes you're never getting back, <laughs> I know. And now I'm talking about it for nine minutes. It's crazy. <laughs> All right, are we ready for the top ten? I think we are. I'm pretty excited about this. This is interesting. All right. All right. So, so for the, for those of you at home, for the top ten, we're expand out a little bit, do a little more storytelling rather than just listing, and we're gonna go we're gonna go back and forth between the two to keep things mixed up. Absolutely, you don't want to like hear an early, me talk. like an early rap sample. <laughs> we're just gonna splice it in there. Ricka, ricka, ricka. <laughs> we're gonna have to do that. Yeah, we're gonna wicka wicka between each one of the, the top <laughs> That's ten. What we're gonna do. It's required now. I require it. All right. Well, how about you give me a wicka wicka so I can do number ten? All right. Uh, Bob Dylan's number 10. Wicka, 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 wicka. I'm actually, I'm lumping two people together for number 10. What? I know, I'm sorry. I, I have to do it because they're both, they were both famous for a time, but they're both generally like session players, but they both figured into Bob's greatest period of music, which was the 65 okay. to 66 period. So one is Mike Bloomfield. He is just a rip-roaring blues rock guitarist uh, from okay. the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. And um, he had actually met Bob in like 63 and they worked together um, to make Bob go electric. So here, here are Mike Bloomfield's accomplishments. Judas! 
Wait, I, it was every before, time you talk about Bob going electric, I'm going to yell Judas. Now, this is, this is before that. This, the podcast. this is the famous uh, 1965 Newport Festival performance where he came out electric and Pete Seeger took an axe and tried to cut the, the wires um, to the sound because it was so loud. <laughs> it's a intense story that we'll get into when we do 1965. So, okay. uh, Mike Bloomfield, he played on Like a Rolling Stone, the greatest rock song of all time, apparently. He was on the entirety of Highway 61 Revisited, the great album from 1965, and he was... So good that I even own it. it, Even you. Even you own that one. And uh, he was on stage for the Newport performance, which is like one of the handful of most famous uh, live shows of all time. And then my second guy is Al Cooper, who um, has many, many, many accomplishments in the rock world. I'm not sure that he was ever exactly famous. He might have played with David Bowie at some point. He was like... He had his fingerprints, you know, kind of in the background of many, uh-huh. many great albums um, through rock history. He was a guitarist, but most notably Wait, for Bob, again? Al Cooper with a K. Mm. That doesn't sound familiar, but okay. it's possible. It's possible. Uh, he played the organ in a very apocryphal, famous story on Like a Rolling Stone. The story goes that he was... He wanted to come in and be a session guitarist, but Mike Bloomfield was already there, and Mike Bloomfield was, like, the best guitarist in the world or something. So he's like, oh, I can't do that. So he... <laughs> oh, shucks. Oh, shucks. He was, like, a kid. He was, like, 19 or something. <laughs> oh, darn. I can't play with Bob Dylan. <laughs> so he went and he sat down at the organ without any of the producers or anybody knowing, and he played along as they tracked it, and all of a sudden the producer's like, hey, man, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm playing organ, and Bob loved the organ part, and it's probably the most it's probably the most famous organ part in rock and roll history. So, and then I, okay. so that's that's kind of my like mid '60s session player duo for number ten. All right, Chaz. Okay. Wicked, wicked, one. wicked. All right, I'm starting things off. Our number ten is kind of a let's say a, a what the mick type edition. Yes. Um, a WTM. What the Mick? What the Mick? And that is Mr. Bing Crosby. <laughs> what the Mick? What the Mick? Bing Crosby, Mick famous crooner, actor of many, many long ten years, somehow managed to collaborate with David Bowie just a few weeks before he died, actually, uh, on a Christmas song. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, this is Bowie's only Christmas songs. Unlike some musicians I can mention, they did not do an entire Christmas album. You know what? That's an underrated album, Chaz. So just so you know. It's <laughs> Christmas it? in the heart. Is it, it's Christmas in your heart. Christmas in the heart. <laughs> uh, anyway, they did a collaboration on a Christmas special that Bing Crosby put together. In 1977, yes. Bowie's most avant-garde year, mm-hmm. probably bar none, ever. ever. Druggiest, They did this too. completely bizarre, surreal performance together. Started with some, uh, there's kind of like a skit that went with it. And so it starts out with Bing Crosby in his uh, mansion, like playing piano or something. And Dylan kind of comes in and says, and he talks really quiet, like, oh, hi, hi, Bing Crosby. I'm, and the whole time it's very, I don't know. You really gotta watch. It's this the best. Show. If you only watch one, well, we're gonna have another one later, and you have to watch for yeah, sure. You have to watch right this up show. there. So this is light patter about. Oh, I'm not so young. I, you know, uh, I'm just. They, they say that I can use the piano. Are you that uh, American relative? And, well, I don't know about that. I can't do it, Bing Crosby. You know, who can? But they end up for some reason singing a Christmas song together. Uh, the choice was Little Drummer Boy, mm-hmm. but but we hated that song. 
Oh. And so they wrote him a counterpoint melody called Peace on Earth. So Bing Crosby sings Little Drummer Boy and Bowie sings Peace on Earth. The results are not completely disastrous. No, they come to the song. they're not. The song is okay. The whole skit and sketch and light ridiculous patter is, I don't know, it's un- unintentionally hilarious. It's wildly entertaining for all the wrong reasons. Uh, it's just great. And the video, the video just makes it. It's just great. Like I said, they recorded it, you know, in September or something like that. Uh, Bing Crosby died before it actually was shown for Christmas. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, it's famously because Bowie did, the next she especially did after that was with Mark Bolin of yeah. T-Rex. Yeah, yeah. And he also died before their performance was broadcast. Like, this was like two performances in a row where Bowie performed with Sony and then they died. And somehow <laughs> David Bowie lived through the 70s. After I know, well, the 70s clean. Anyway, this, uh, this little nugget, this little zesty nugget, uh-huh. was not officially released. It was officially released as a single in 1982 against Bowie's wishes, naturally. Of course. Bowie also performed Heroes at this same Christmas special for some reason mm-hmm. on his own, but... You know, that one was never released. Or not until, like, the last two years or something. All right, that's number ten. Okay. I just have two things to add to your to your thing. I just want you I to take, tell the... I take back the Wicca Wicca. Tell the podcast audience who got you one of the coolest Christmas presents ever one year. And what was oh, it? Oh, man. All right, I'm gonna, I'll give it. Give Jake some credit on yes. this one. He got me on, on Red Vinyl. He got me this, yeah. this collaboration. Uh, so, on an EP. So choice. So tasty. I'm re- it's so tasty. It is, yeah. I got uh, it on CD now, too, but... Well, yeah. That that one, yeah. That one tops it. Yep. I'll give you right. credit for that. Number two, real quick. Um, there's a funnier Die video with Will Ferrell and John C. Riley doing <laughs> I've this. I've seen this one. It is just... They end up fighting each other at the end, and like one of them falls into the Christmas tree. But they actually sing the song together. It's, it's magnificent. Well, the thing is, though, it's like the first... 90% of that video is completely straight. Right. 100% what the, the actual video is. Right. Until they start fighting, basically. And it's, it's so uncomfortable. There's no difference whatsoever. Yeah, it's it's just funny. It's hilarious. It's funny. All right, give me the Wicca Wicca. All right. Wicca Wicca Wicca! All right, your friend and mine coming in at number nine, Daniel Lanois! <laughs> You know, it's just, in the podcast. it's ridiculous. This is the only time, those two times are the only times they ever work together. But now oh. we've talked, like Daniel Lanois in, you know, the narrative of our podcast sounds like he was Bob's son or something. Like his best, <laughs> he's his number best two friend. Mick Ronson. Yeah, exactly. He's like the Mick to Bob's Bowie or something. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Did that work? Like that. I think that worked. <laughs> Um, okay, so Lanois has uh, many great accomplishments as a producer. That's his thing. We've talked about him ad nauseum, so I'm not going to go over it again. I just want to, I just want to list the highlights of his discography as a producer. Go. Um, I'll just list all the great U2 albums: Unforgettable Fire, Joshua Tree, Octune Baby. Um, I think all that you can't leave behind too. The early 2000s one. He worked with Eno on a lot of those. He did. They he was, them together. He was like the the second in command or something. Yeah. Um, he sweet, sweet produced Brian, yeah. Brian Eno's Thursday Afternoon. Do you know that album? I have that album. It's okay. a great album. So I didn't know he did that. It. He I produced thought, at least one or I two. Eno just kind of produced his own albums. Well, Lanois, you know, he stepped up to the plate. Okay. He, well, he smashed well, done, some, well done. He smashed some guitars and got down to work. <laughs> uh, There's no guitars in that album. Well, he smashed them. Whatever it was that he could smash. He, he smashed them first. He smashed so them real good. 
Uh, he did one or two Peter Gabriel albums. He did a great Emmylou Harris album in the mid-90s. He did a Neil Young album. And he did the Sling Blade soundtrack. So... <laughs> Sure, yeah. I'm not going that to goes do, with that. I'm not gonna do a sling blade impression and neither are you. We're gonna spare No, no, don't we're worry. Spare everybody. So um just as a quick refresher, he uh Lanois produced Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy, a minor eighties classic, and he produced a full blown classic, Time Out of Mind, in nineteen ninety seven, and a true collaborator on both, despite Bob not being a good collaborator with people. So <laughs> wiki 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 Alright. Number nine. Uh, I feel like we should have got some like blues noodling going. Like, I know I can't. I can't. Do but you know who can do blues noodling on actual guitars? Let me. Is Stevie Ray Vaughan? <laughs> yeah. So Stevie Ray Vaughan, blues noodler extraordinaire of the eighties, because he died in like ninety one or something. Yes, in a helicopter crash. In a helicopter crash. Anyway. He, like Luther Vanders, I really came close to combining Stevie Ray Vaughan and Luther Vanders yeah. into one, because their but, stories are so similar. You might as well. But Bowie, uh, uh, Bowie discovered, basically discovered Stevie Ray Vaughan. So Bowie was, he was, I don't remember where he was, he was at some festival or something, happened to catch Stevie Ray Vaughan down in Texas, noodling away, blues noodling on his guitar, just ripping it up. And uh, Bowie's like, hey, I need that guy on my next album. Mm. I'm going to get that guy on my next album, which he did. And his next album happened to be his most successful album ever. Let's dance. Let's dance. Let's dance. Dump, 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 dump. Let's yeah, and dance. all of that blues noodling on that song is Stevie Ray Vaughan. That's so, excellent. Go. You start talking. And I just said that's excellent. That's like, let's dance. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh... So Steve Ravine played all over that album. It's not every, not on every track. It's not most of them. And it kind of like set. This was a very kind of like new thing to to combine this really pop sensibility with a blues guitarist. But it happened then all over songs in the '80s after that. And Bowie's really kind of credited. Bowie and Stevie Ravine are credited with getting this started. Couple quick uh, stories about Stevie Ravine here. Now, he got big after this, but this was his first big break. Uh, he was supposed to. Uh, play guitar on the 1983 Serious Moonlight Tour. Oh, yeah. And uh, there were some some little problems. He didn't necessarily get along well with others, in this case, anyway. <laughs> and they were, like, already, they're all going, Bowie was already off somewhere because he was, I think it was for one of his movies. He was in a movie premiere or something for one of his movies. So he wasn't leaving with the rest of them. The rest of them were leaving from their rehearsal studios going to, you know, fly out for the first dates in Europe or something. And, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's manager decided right then, decided that was the time to demand that he get paid more. Mm. Yeah, good timing. And uh, so they're like at the airport, and he's like saying, no, Stevie Ray, Stevie Ray Vaughan doesn't go unless we get unless he gets paid more. And they said no. Oh. oh, well then. So Stevie Ray Vaughan stayed behind and was not on the tour. It's kind of a, that's kind of a D move. Like, who had more money than Bowie? <laughs> kind of. Who had more money than Bowie much, at that you know, time? Stevie Ray was involved in this decision, but, you yeah. know, he at least okayed it. He's just like, okay. He didn't have an English accent, but that's what he sounded like. <laughs> and he left. Right. And so he's just, womp, womp. And one of the band members had a little anecdote in one of the books I read about, like, saying this one of the saddest things he ever saw was just old Stevie Ray <laughs> standing there with all his suitcases at the, at the airport, not going on this tour. <laughs> and he's like, there goes Mickey Ray Vaughn, a real bloke. <laughs> uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, Stevie Ray Vaughn was mad about a lot of things. He didn't really understand how, like, superstardom works. 
okay. was really mad in the Let's Dance video. Bowie mimes playing his guitar solo. Oh, nice. And uh, Stevie Ray was not happy about that. Yeah. So they kind of fell out. They never did an album together. Again. That's okay. Stevie Ray turned out pretty famous and pretty good. He did okay. On yeah, he did. Yeah, Except he did. for the dying in a helicopter. Except party. for that helicopter party. That was a bummer in his career, for sure. All right. Back to you, Jake. Wicka, wicka, wicka. All right. Number eight is Emmy Lou Harris. What? Yeah, we all know her. So we goes all... out to our mother. Yes, this goes out to uh, this goes out to Nance for sure. Um, I love Amy Lou Harris. I was thinking just yesterday because Nico Case has a new album coming out. I'm very excited about it, or I think it came out anyway. Um, I was I'm struggling to think of like who's my favorite female vocalist or songwriter of all time. And I would have like, guessed Nico Case. For you. I think it might be Nico Case. I just she's the best. But Amy Lou Harris would probably be number two. I realize. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so Amy Lou Harris played, uh, well, played, she sang um, very beautifully on Bob's classic 1976 album, which we've talked about, called Desire. Um, that was the ragtag group that, that Dylan brought in um, to the studio to sing all these gypsy songs, um, including like Eric Clapton and T-Bone Burnett and a bunch of other people. Um, but what happened during the recording session is some people couldn't hang with this like very loose collective kind of feel. Uh -huh. like, some of these musicians, such as Eric Clapton, um, came in thinking like, "Oh, this will be a this will be a studio session. We'll all sit down and play these songs and get them all tracked and get them all done." Bob blew in, you know, on whatever drugs he was on at the time, and just like was like a hurricane, you know, like let's do this, let's do that, let's uh, let's sing this song, and they basically recorded the album in like two hours or something like that. Okay. You know, later at a different session, but it was so chaotic that a lot of them left. But uh, Amy Lou Harris stuck around, and her vocals are a trademark of that album. I don't need to list Amy Lou's later accomplishments. She's one of the biggest Very rock and many. roll and country stars we have going. So way to go, Amy Lou. Um, oh, she did not go on the Rolling Thunder Review tour, though. Probably, probably for the best, though. That didn't sound like... It sounded like fun at first, and then it sounded like a terrible nightmare the second time. <laughs> so, she dodged a bullet on that one. Emmy Lou Harris, number eight. Wicked, wicked, wicked. All right, number eight, Mr. Lou Reed. Yeah, Lou. Uh, Bowie has a lot of intersections with him. It started with... Bowie somehow got, like, an Sweet Lou. early acetate pressing of the Velvet Underground and Nico's. Oh, yeah. Um, from his manager at the time, who was in New York. I know he somehow got out of it. So Bowie was like, I mean, hipster cred on this one, because he was there before the album even was released. And even after it was released, nobody, you know, not very many people cared. Uh, so Bowie was a big champion of Lou Reed early on. He played White Light, White Heat, and Waiting for My Man about 100 times on 10 different tours. Mm -hmm. Those showed up over and over and over again. Well, after the Velvet Underground broke up, uh, Bowie kind of got Lou Reed's solo career started like going mm. Lou Reed did do one solo album that tanked and it was supposed to be awful I haven't listened to it and uh, so he brought him over got him his manager and his management company like took on Lou Reed they uh, they worked together and Bowie actually produced Lou Reed's classic album yes. Transformer that's a great one I had and, that and uh, Mick Ronson did the arrangements wow a Mick yeah that's right the, the Mick so, Luke Transformer, yeah, considered one of an all-time classic album, usually considered Lou Reed's best. I personally like Berlin better, but that's just me. Yeah. Uh, You're in wrong. In later years, they did perform live together multiple times. Um, Bowie appears on Lou Reed's 2003 Edgar Allan Poe-themed album, The Raven, apparently. <laughs> Excellent. I'm not listening to it again, get you listen to it. 
No. Uh, but Bowyer really is a big credit in having gotten him started on his uh, legitimate solo career. All right. So, good one, Bowie. Way to go, Lou Reed. Way to go. Back to you, Jake. Go, wicka, wicka. All right. Number seven on my list is the great American poet, Allen Ginsberg. Ooh. Yeah. I just want to say, good old Allen. I mean, he was, he's probably my favorite beat, maybe besides, maybe besides Jack Kerouac, but I just, that poem that he did uh, called America, I don't know if you've heard it. And I don't know if you... I know that I mean, I've only read, I know Howell, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Howell. read a ton of this, I'll admit. And the reason I love it is he does, Allen Ginsberg reads a good version of it. He reads it out loud. I think it's, I'm sure it's on YouTube or something like that. It is just great. Great poem. He kind of shows up in a lot of pop circles. And, yes, he you does. Know, like, he ends up with, he worked with Tom Waits at one point, I'm pretty sure. Oh, for sure. And I think he's, uh, He's a little bit of an Andy Warhol, except he, he yeah, I can he's see not that. he's not the center, but he goes to other no. people. So also, if, I think he worked with Andy Warhol. I'm sure he did. Yeah, okay. he worked with. Well, uh, so he shows up in "Don't Look Back," the documentary about Bob Dylan's 1965 tour. Okay. He's just kind of like a prankster, jokester type. He's like mm-hmm. just around. He's like riding golf carts and like jumping around and being crazy. You can see him. There's a famous uh, scene from that movie where Bob Dylan has all these placards with the lyrics to Subterranean Homesick Blues on them. Okay. And he's like dropping the placards as the lyrics come up. Um, and Allen Ginsberg's just in the background, like talking with somebody or smoking. It's like <laughs> all this like avant-garde stuff that they were uh-huh. doing. Um, and probably the best thing he ever did for Bob Dylan uh, is he brokered the first meeting between Bob Dylan and the Beatles. He was there. Brokered the first meeting? There was he, a first meeting? Yeah, there was I the mean, first meeting. There was like a, I, it was like a meeting of the minds, you know. I think okay. it was like 65. It okay. was uh, right after Dylan went electric. I don't know where this was. I didn't do the research on it. I'm sure it'll come up in a later episode. Because uh, would Dylan have cared about the Beatles? I mean, that's, that's oh, like yeah. Cover, you know, at the Beatles' point in their career in 65. Well, they were probably the two you know, biggest They were still like, they're going. still like the end sync of their times, you know? Yes, but they were just about to, they were just about to take Rubber off. Rubber Soul, 65? Yeah, Rubber Soul and Help. Rubber Soul's their, their, their big turning point. Yeah, and Help was just before that. But Bob, yeah, Help was the starting point, yeah. Bob's talked about how he heard, he heard I Want to Hold Your Hand and all those early Beatles ones on the radio and it just blew his mind. Like apparently those, oh, yeah? those were far more influential on people than you would think because they sound... Okay. They sound a little silly now, I think. Yeah, yeah. But they were, like, mind-boggling, apparently. Like, the harmonies and the chords they were using were were so different and so advanced, you know, past what early rock and roll was, I guess. Okay. Anyway, so Bob good, and the Beatles are... Beatles. Yeah, so they... Uh, and apparently, this, this could be apocryphal, but Dylan supposedly introduced them to marijuana at this meeting. <laughs> and subsequently, the Beatles went and started smoking dope, and they made Rubber Soul, and the rest is history. Marijuana. Yeah, so thanks, thank Alan. Thanks, Alan Ginsberg. And then, of course, uh, we have discussed it, but Alan Ginsberg decided he wanted to be a musician and a songwriter and uh, brought Bob along for the ride on several crazy recordings um, that are okay. sometimes unlistenable. But, you know, they're there, they exist. So, Alan Ginsberg, a great American hero, at number seven. Wiki, wiki, wiki. Number seven for Bowie is a little bit of a turn. This is more of a thematic choice than an actual output choice. Great. And that's Mr. Trent Reznor oh, of the Nine yes. Inch Nails. Good one. Trent, this seems like a strange, strange pairing. But in the mid-90s, 
Bowie was very inspired by Nine Inch Nails and other industrial electronic music acts. I can definitely And released uh, 1995's Outside, which is one of his best post-Glory period albums. Um, and they, he actually toured with Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch mm-hmm. Nails opened for Bowie. I remember that. But it wasn't just opening. They actually performed like half their sets together. They performed six or seven songs together. And a mixture of Bowie's songs and Nine Inch Nails songs. Um, and so there's really weird, hostile environment at those concerts because there were people who came just to see Nine Inch Nails and who did not really care about Bowie, and probably vice versa. I don't know, but you hear more about the, the Nine Inch Nails fans. But um, yeah, the they were angry about everything. Really big friends. They were good pals. Uh, Reznor has credited Bowie as helping him to get off of drugs, get oh, clean. Good one. It's a good one, Bowie. Thanks, Bowie. Uh, the song I'm Afraid of Americans, which was not until 1997, yep. uh, Trent Reznor did six different remixes of it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it was released on, like, there's like an LP of I'm Afraid of Americans remixes, and they're all really, really different to each other. And the official single of I'm Afraid of Americans is a one of the remixes. Yeah. And Trent Reznor appears in the video. Yeah. As, like a creepy American stalking Bowie. That's right. Who Bowie's afraid <laughs> Who of. Who wears this totally sweet turtleneck. <laughs> yeah. That's Bowie, not, not Trent Reznor. Of course. So Trent Reznor, and this just kind of revitalized him. It was a very different collaboration, very different uh-huh. environment for him. So there we go. So Trent this Reznor, is, number seven. Wicka, wicka. This was probably, um, just as an aside, this was one of the weird intersections in my life with Bowie. Because when I went to college, uh-huh. the, uh, the Fragile, the great Nine Inch Nails album, had just come out. And I got way into the Fragile. And so, yeah, I agree time. So, you know, early nascent internet kind of days, um, I definitely got, I definitely got into that Bowie Resner collaboration and watched the video and was like, oh, okay. Bowie, he's so edgy now. <laughs> His soul patch was so edgy. His soul patch is just as edgy as you can get. It cut people, Chaz. It was so edgy. Oh, man. Just, oh, okay. Man. So I'm going to go with somebody here for number six, uh, who is I'm the, also going to throw in here, Jake. We yeah. are long-winded. We are. We're at 41 minutes. We probably need to cut things down just a little bit, both of us. Well, I'm going shorter than you. I just want you to know that. Okay. Moving into number six. (laughs) Oh, uh, the absolute exact opposite of Trent Reznor. I can't think of of a musician in the history of music besides, I don't know, Mozart or somebody that is more opposite Trent Reznor. Number six for me, Mavis Staples. Ooh. Ah, the early civil rights activist slash wonderful singer for the Staple Singers, a gospel group, a family gospel group. She, of course, ended up with her own solo career. Um, They, Mavis and Bob, dated in the early 60s. Bob was infatuated with her. Um, And I guess the feeling was vice versa. Uh, Mavis Staples gave a wonderful interview, I think in 2016. She she has been putting out a series of albums that are really well-received recently. Um, and there's a, there's a Bowie reference along with a Dylan reference. So for Dylan, she said, quote, We smooched. We courted in the early 60s. Bob asked her to marry. And wow. She turned him down. She thought they were too young to get married. And I thank you, Mavis. I can't imagine him ruining poor Mavis Staples like she's a, <laughs> she's a national treasure like she's this interview is so great like she talks about what they would be like now if they were married and she says something and I'm, I'm just going to guess that this is a metaphor for children she's like 
we'd have all these little plum crushers running around and we'd be taking care of each other. I guess plum crushers as children? I've never heard that. <laughs> never heard that one. Um, and uh, they co-wrote a song, I think, kind of changed my way of thinking. Anyway, Mavis is great. She says of David Bowie they met in the 70s. David Bowie came to, to kiss her ring. And this is, this is, she quotes David Bowie as saying this to her. He says, there she is, that beautiful lady. All right. Something, something he would say. Yep. And then uh, she said she was so excited to meet David Bowie that she did not sleep that night. <laughs> oh, So, <Mavis. laughs> I know. I know. Mavis is the best. All right. Wiki, wiki, wiki. Number six. Uh, somewhere, somewhere in the, no, 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 no. Number six is Tina Turner. Great. We're throwing Tina Turner out there. Just throw it in there. Uh, it's not the polar opposite of Mavis Staples, because I know she did stuff in the 60s, but not really anything to do with Mavis Staples. Uh, no, Tina Turner, you know, she had her big 60s work with Ike Turner, um, kind of fell out of there, wasn't doing anything, and then, of course, had the gigantic resurgence of her career in 1980, Daddy. which, like Lou Reed and Stevie Ray Vaughan, and, well, Lou Reed more, is kind of due to Bowie. Mm. Bowie insisted he fought with, uh, oh, I don't have it written down. He helped her get a contract in the early 80s. He insisted that, that his uh, record label give her a contract. Like, he made them do it. He forced them. Um, which was a good decision. And, and I'm sure they were after later on, like, oh, thanks, Bowie. Uh, thanks for the millions of dollars we made off Tina Turner. Hope you got points on so, that. So, Tina Turner does vocals on the Tonight song, Tonight. And <laughs> they did guest vocals together a few different times. They Bowie showed up on stage for a couple of performances. He's on a couple of her live albums, like just performing like two songs. And maybe most notably, they did a Pepsi commercial together. Oh, excellent. It's pretty dramatic. Pretty over the top. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> it's good. They were just good friends. They just hang out a lot in the 80s. Oh, good. Kind of the same, kind of the same haircut at different points. You know? Excellent. Excellent. Back to you. Wicka, wicka. All right. What are we at? Number five? Number five. Right. Halfway, halfway home. All right. Uh, Tom Petty. Big yes. star. Tom Petty uh, somehow sounded exactly like Bob Dylan, his voice anyway, <laughs> but never got, never got like slandered for it. Do you? Well, I mean, I love Tom Petty. Don't get me wrong. He is wonderful. But he's basically like kind of a Bob Dylan um, that came, that blew through in the, in the 80s, uh, late 70s, 80s, 90s. Tom Petty's a national treasure. We're sorry for his loss. <laughs> is he? He, I think so, don't you? Okay. I, like Tom Petty. I, I don't know. I, I'm fine with Tom Petty, man. but I'm not a Tom Petty fan. Oh, man. You get off this podcast. Uh, <laughs> they notably work together on traveling Wilburys, but then what sets them apart from the other Wilburys, um, at least most of them, is that uh, they toured together in 85, and then they co wrote songs for Bob Dylan's 1986 Garbage Fire album, Knocked Out Loaded. <laughs> Um, and Tom Petty has a Bob Dylan collab co-write on one of his Garbage Fire albums from the 80s as well. All right. So, Good uh, one, Petty. Yeah. So he kind of, you know, they had a real collaboration there for a couple of years. Wiki, wiki. <laughs> number five is Mick number one, <laughs> Mr. Mick Jagger. Woo! You knew this was coming, Jake. Have you been waiting for it? I didn't know when he would chart, but I number five, He's I guess. He's showing up what. at number five. So Great. Bowie and Mick and Jagger. I mean, they had they were friends for years. There are all kinds of rumors that they slept together in the early seventies, maybe mm. multiple times. No one knows for sure. No never one, confirmed. No one but will ever know. It would not be surprising for either one of them. At the no. Time uh, they their one true collaboration. Although Bowie's rumored to have played on different 
Rolling Stones albums and stuff. I don't know if it actually happened. Nothing concrete. Their one true collaboration was for a cover of the famous standard <laughs> Dancing in the Street. Absolutely. In 1985. Classic. The background is... It was Live Aid, which was just, you know, sucking up everybody's talent and making horrible things with it. Uh, they were <laughs> supposed to do a live performance together with Bowie in London and uh, Jagger in Philadelphia, I think. Okay. And it was like they both were gonna be, they were on stage together. They were going to sing the song together at the same time. Oh, whoa. But then they realized with the satellite link up, it caused like a half second delay. I was going to say. And it had to be scrapped. It wouldn't work. So instead, they recorded the song, and ended up releasing it as a single with all proceeds going to Live Aid. They recorded the full song and the right, in a total of 13 hours. Wow, like, what? Got in the studio, 13 hours later, the entire song had been recorded, and the video had been shot. No. That's crazy. Now this video is, it's, ex- it's extravagantly ridiculous. Just go watch it. You go watch, maybe pause the podcast and go watch it right now. Honest to goodness. It's, uh, the first time I watched it, I kind of like cheered that I'd finally found the official uh, career low point of David Bowie. Absolutely. And it's also the career low point of Mick Jagger at the same time. <laughs> and that is saying something for both of those gentlemen. A notable thing, I have a little story in here. There's an episode of Family Guy okay. in which uh, Peter is homeschooling the kids. I have not watched the whole episode. I just watched the necessary parts. Which is he's homeschooling the kids and talking about different you know, like cultural touchstones and uh and one of them is this video and <laughs> family guy which is famous for its extended gags yeah plays the entire video oh in the middle God. of the episode like the actual video the, the actual video the whole thing in the middle of the episode oh that's wonderful followed up with peter quipping that happened we <laughs> let it happen <laughs> wow one last no point on this there is an excellent uh online youtube series of what music videos without the music and there's a version of this vi- video the music videos without the music that's completely hilarious i just about fell down and apparently bowie really liked it too that's amazing i read that somewhere that he had watched it and loved it I, like stopped recording uh, next day at one point <laughs> the video and made them watch it with him <laughs> That's it for Mick number one. Wow. Mick, number one Mick. All right. Number four on my list is Joan Baez. Um, oh, yeah. She oh, number is, four, man. I know. We got, some heavy, we got some heavy hitters on the list yeah. coming up here. We're getting into the real serious, like, celebrity, whatever, rock and roll yeah. people. Um, her distinction, of course, besides her own uh, wonderful career, um, is that she was the only person on this list to have brought along Bob Dylan instead of being like either an equal or being brought along by Bob Dylan. Okay. Joan Baez was famous before Bob Dylan. She was like I don't think I knew that. Number one folk singer. Um, she was uh, she's like famous before Peter Paul and Mary, all that stuff. She was kind of like a luminary, uh, you know, kind of the queen of the folk singers. At a young age, um, she ended up dating Bob Dylan of course, but she also mm-hmm. um, brought Bob along on her shows and introduced him to her built-in audience, which was sizable for a folk singer at that time. Uh-huh. So she assisted him, and uh, he returned the favor in 1964 on his tour by bringing her along on a couple shows, including the Philharmonic show, which we talked about um, with the Bootleg series. Um, not long after that, though, Bob uh, pretty much did her dirty and just stopped inviting her along as he went and became you know, one of the most famous singers in the world. Um, they would reconnect in 1976 for the Rolling Thunder review. She went on the tour. She's not on the album, but she went on the tour. 
Um, and then I think they, you know, theirs is just like a whole podcast. Their relationship is like an entire podcast. <laughs> it's so she complicated. A couple like Dylan diss tracks. She did not record diss tracks. What she did, and it's it's wonderful. We have a lot of homework for you, podcast audience. You should go listen to it <laughs> on her nineteen seventy. I want to say seven. I might be wrong. She recorded an album called Diamonds and Rust. Um, and she was always doing Dylan covers, like, throughout her entire career. But on this particular Dylan cover, which was... Oh, I'm forgetting the name of the song. It's off of Blood on the Tracks. Oh, Simple Twist of Fate. She does an amazing dead ringer Bob Dylan impression for an entire verse. <laughs> with the whole nasal whine and everything. It's, it's fantastic. And for that, she clenched to number four on my list. Wiki, wiki, wiki. Number four, a little somebody by the name of, oh, I don't know, John Lennon. Oh, who's that? Oh, who's that? Uh, Bowie and John Lennon recorded a couple songs together in 1975. So Bowie had recorded the bulk of the album that would become Young Americans, originally called The Gouster. And uh, like to the point where they found it, thought it was done. His producer, Tony Visconti, had gone back to England. Oh, boy. Uh, they just kind of thought it was done. And then Bowie had the chance to hang out with John Lennon at some point. They ended up talking. They ended up decided to head over to the studio. They recorded two songs. One is a little track called, oh, I don't know, Fame. One Never of heard of biggest it. songs. Co-written by and performing and performed on by John Lennon. Wow. They also called, it recorded a completely god-awful cover of Across the Universe for some reason. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's horrible. Which I consider to be Bowie's worst recording of the wow. 70s. Worst So uh, it's really unfortunate that one made it on 1975 uh, on the Young Americans, but fame is great. Last little story here, that's their only collaboration together, but it's a biggie, because it happened there. Yeah. And reshaped that album entirely. Uh, notably, Bowie, so John Lennon, of course, was shot in 1980 in New York. Mm -hmm. Bowie was in New York at the time. He was like a block and a half away. or no I don't way. Know, a block and a half. He was not very far away. And the, I, I forget the name of the person who killed John Lennon, who shot John Lennon. Uh, Chapman. But that, Something Chapman. That person, like, very nearly decided to, uh, to shoot Bowie instead. Really? Like, it was, it was really close. It's like, there was, you know, they've looked into this person, and there was really considerations. And the person I, was intending to shoot Bowie first, and for whatever reason decided to, oh, wow. uh, to shoot Lennon instead. I didn't know that. And Bowie was, I think he was performing the play The Elephant Man at the time in mm -hmm. New York. Mm -hmm. And was, yeah. I don't know, less than two miles away or something like that. And it was a big deal for Bowie. It really shook him a lot, not surprisingly. Yeah, no. So, there you go. Sweet, sweet John Lennon. Wow. Wicka, wicka. Number three is The Band. Not a band. The Band. The Band. Uh, Bob's Partners in Crime for many, many years. They started off as a Canadian bar band. They played all these bars. Then they turned into The Hawks. Um, they backed a blues singer named Ronnie Hawkinson of Who Do You Love fame. That was his, <laughs> that was his hit. Famous in parentheses there. Yep. Um, so he they toured with them, him, and uh, they were called the Hawks. And then, you know, I don't know the specific story of how Bob Dylan hooked up with them. He just, I think he saw them play with Ronnie Hawkinson, and he thought, this this is the band I need to go electric with basically. Judas! So, Judas! He took them along on the European tour. They were not called the band yet when they backed Bob Dylan during that whole thing. Um, and then, of course, they went on to great acclaim as their own band called The Band. 
um, on albums like Music from nice Big Pink nice and their one. self-titled. Thanks, man. And then they got back together for a tour in 1974, Bob's first since the Judas tour. Um, he took them back along to great, uh, to great success, at least commercial success. The music's another story, but we'll talk about that. And then they did an album together called... Oh, man, I can see the cover. It's in 1974. Anyway, they did a band. Anyhow. Another album together. We'll talk about it at some point. And then they've just been linked in the public imagination forever since then. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, their, their last thing together was The Last Waltz, which was the band's Thanksgiving performance in 1978 that was captured by Martin Scorsese for a movie of the same name. And Bob came out and just, you know, blew everyone away. He was the closer to the entire thing. It was their last concert together as the band. And Bob nice one, ushered Bob. them off the stage. The end. Wiki, wiki. Uh, coming in at number three is Queen. Whoa. <laughs> Queen. Nice collab by us song. right there. So huge, so big. Yeah, so that's good. a great song. Bowie, this was kind of like was an accidental thing that I have. So that's a good story here. Bowie was in some studio in Switzerland, I want to say, recording vocals for a track called Cat People, Putting Out Fire, <laughs> yep. which was actually written by Giorgio Moroder, yeah. who I probably should have mentioned at some point because he's probably famous enough to be in here. And here he is now. Uh, so Bowie was there to do the, the, uh, to do the vocals for that. Which that one song wasn't released until '82, but uh, Queen was there in the studio recording their 1982 help Hot Space, mm. and so they happened to like run into each other, kind of said, "Hey, what the heck? Let's record a song together," and they did that. They recorded exactly one song together. But we apparently was going to be doing backing backing vocals on some song. I think it was called Cool Cat. But I'm not sure about that. And uh, they ultimately did not use his vocals on that, but they did record. Under pressure. Wow. There's all kinds of debate over who came up with the famous baseline. Oh, wow. No one seems to remember correctly. Okay. Uh, it there, might have been Bowie, but it might have been some bass player on Queen, whose name I can't remember. It's hard to say, but it's kind of a giant world-conquering song, oh, yeah. Under Pressure. It's a good one. Yeah, it's an era. It's got a really thing. excellent music video, too. It was famous because they used a bunch of stock footage. Mm -hmm. They did not have them singing or anything. I think it's so that they couldn't get them all in one place at one time to record a video. Of course. So the uh, the director instead found all the stock footage, including stuff from old silent films and like explosions and all kinds of things <laughs> for this really excellent video, which is pretty. It was pretty in, uh, innovative for you know 1981 to even see music videos like that at the time. Right. So it's a good one. Yeah. So that's a short, short but sweet story. I'll save my longer stories for the top two. I have a little more to talk about. Back to you, Jake. Two, two words, Vanilla Ice. Just kidding. Number two on my list <laughs> is... I was going to say, you're going back to Under Pressure, Jake. Come on. Sorry. Which, by the way, I, I am a, a media director at a the school. It's my job. And I use Under Pressure and uh, Ice Ice Baby uh -huh. for my as an opener for my talks about copyright law. <laughs> Excellent. Wow, wait a minute. Ice got sued on about it because he didn't, you know, claim that he used it when I it was actually sampled. <laughs> I can't believe that's so Maybe ridiculous. 
Copyright law was a different animal back then, though, you gotta say. It was. It really was. Yeah. Especially when it came to sampling. Exactly. Big, like, big changes. Like, the Beastie Boys sampled the Beatles, like, all over. Oh, yeah. Like, Paul's Boutique would not, right. not exist nowadays. Not even close. so much more stuff. With, it would with, cost, uh, like, $8 million dollars just to sample all that stuff. Yeah. All yeah. right. Point being, number two, actually, my actual two words... Johnny Cash. Ever heard oh, of him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Man in Black. Uh, some other nicknames. Uh, they worked together in 19... They worked together in 1969, as we've discussed. They did. Nashville Skyline. Yep, just before that, during those recording sessions, uh, of course, they collaborated on a song on Nashville Skyline, the opening track, Girl from the North Country. Um, wonderful. They did 18, I think it was 18 other songs in that session, which will will be wow. a bootleg series at some point. Just get ready be for it. an interesting one. It's not good. They're it's all, not good. Okay, no, they're all online. They're, you know, they just kind of like started playing together. It wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily something you needed to record, really. Um, probably the only good one is North Country Fair. They're just kind of sloppy. They're just playing together, you know. It wasn't supposed to be anything. Yeah, man. There's jam, and then they kind of like ran yeah. out of songs to play eventually that they both knew together. Um, but Johnny Cash was probably the only country singer at that time, especially at that time, um, that was a champion for Bob Dylan. So he okay. he legitimized Dylan's uh, foray into country when many, many other country artists didn't even consider Bob country at all. Uh, so I don't know if that... You know, I think it probably smoothed the way a little bit for Bob Dylan's country conversion, uh, however short-lived it was. Um, but they were pals. Bob went on his TV show. Um, they, you know, stayed in touch throughout the years. They never worked together again. But they kind of, they're kind of linked as these, you know, grizzled old veterans of, of rock and country well, and, and such like that. So yeah, Johnny Cash, almost none bigger than him. All right, wiki wiki. Number two, Mr. Iggy Pop. Ah, yes. There's probably not any other, like, famous person that Bowie worked with more times than Iggy Pop throughout the years. Yeah. The two were big old friends. It started with, uh, while Iggy was still with the Stooges. Bowie produced, or no, he didn't produce. He was going to produce, and then Iggy refused and did it himself. Uh, Raw Power. Yes. Bowie was involved in that album. Right around, this is right at the same time as Transformer. The same time that Bowie got Lou Reed a recording contract with his same people, he did the same thing with Iggy Pop with the Stooges. Um, so Bowie, Bowie did mix Raw Power. So he wasn't involved in that end. He was supposed to produce it, and Iggy Pop wouldn't let him. <laughs> Great. Iggy Pop did it himself, which he did a, apparently a horrible job, but that's okay. That's they ended up getting together again in the 70s when Bowie, both of them were kind of in a similar like drug downward spiral. Mm. Things were getting pretty bad for both of them in 75, 76. Um, so when Bowie moved out to Berlin to clean up, uh, Iggy Pop came with him. They both lived, they lived and hung out together in Berlin during this wow, period. interesting. And, uh, so Bowie, there's kind of this big, you know, four album cycle in 77. Bowie released two albums in 77 and Iggy Pop released two albums in 77. Uh, those albums were The Idiot and mm. Lust for Life. Mm-hmm. Bowie basically wrote all the music for both those two albums. Wow. Iggy Pop wrote all the vocals. Uh, Bowie's credited on all the songs on The Idiot. He's credited on all the songs as the writer, but one on Lust for Life. Bowie played on those albums. He produced those albums. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote most of the music. E-pop wrote most of the lyrics. There was some collaboration more than that, but 
those kind of like giant albums. Both of them are really good albums. Oh, yeah. But we did a lot on. Definitely. But we would come back later on to do basically the same thing in 1986 on Iggy Pop's album, Blah, Blah, Blah. <laughs> great so, great title. Uh, it's just as good as all the rest of Bowie's mid-80s work. Uh, <laughs> Less said, the better. <laughs> and Iggy Pop has kind of disowned that album. He says it's basically just a Bowie album. Like, it was Bowie, naturally, like Let's Dance. I was going to say. Uh, like it was Iggy Pop's biggest album. The song has a real wild child. That was Iggy Pop. I think it's officially his biggest single. I don't even know. Single. If, really? I don't know that. <laughs> Probably. It mattered at the time. No one cares now. Of course. Also in 1977, Iggy Pop went on tour. Bowie went on tour with him and played keyboards on the oh. first half of his 1977 tour. Okay. And subsequently showed up in Iggy Pop's 1978 live album, TDI. All right. And actually, there's been all kinds of other live. There's like a weird, crazy, ridiculous number of live albums from that period released in various forms. And so Bowie's on there. He was on the first half of that tour. Uh, Bowie covered multiple songs from Iggy Pop, some that he co-wrote and some that he didn't, on Let's Dance Tonight and Never Let Me Down. So that's his 80s period. Mm-hmm. Uh, China Girl was originally written by Bowie and, which that was a giant hit off of Let's Dance. Uh, they were originally written by Iggy and Bowie on For the Idiot. I think. Yeah. Tonight, we originally appeared on, I think, Lust for Life, which was a big hit that Tina Turner sang on. Uh, Don't Lay Down and Neighborhood Threat are also songs he covered. And then Iggy Pop actually appears on Low, doing backing vocals, and he appears on multiple songs on Tonight. So there you go. There's a lot of uh, connections between those two guys in the late 70s. Well, early 70s up through the late 80s. So good for them. Big collaboration. Big work together. Nice work, boys. All right. I'm, overwh- wake up, wake up. I'm overwhelmed by everything you just said. There's a lot there. I know. Yeah. I it's there's just a lot. list at this point. And this is our... And lo- this connection was really important. Iggy Pop, like several people on this list, would not really have the career he has now, probably. You know, you never know for sure. But probably without right. Bowie to help him make it happen. Sure. And he was like Lou Reed. He was this early, you know, punk, giantly influential person that nobody heard about. You know, he wasn't giantly influential until later on. Yeah. And Dylan helped make him, like, get him an actual career and, you know, get him paid and stuff, so... Well... Important stuff. Important work. Yeah, I think Bowie needs more acclaim, really. <laughs> you know, he needs, he needs more critical uh, reevaluation. Let's what I'm always talking about. <laughs> well, just wait until the 80s box that comes out later this year. We'll see what they, if, if anybody finally likes it. We'll find out. I That'll they, tell you how much opinions have shifted and how much, you know, how realistic we're actually being here at this point. We're getting blood on the tracks, or I am going to jump off a bridge, pretty sure. <laughs> wicka, wicka. <laughs> yeah, we're getting punchy. This is our longest podcast ever, Chad. It's getting going. We gotta, yeah, we're to wrap this guy all right, up. That's alright, we're at number one. We're good. So, number one, number I'm gonna one. give my give myself a little drum roll. Number one, Bob Dylan collaborator of all time, George Harrison. Oh. Ooh. In addition to being, you know, a beetle. Maybe, I already had one of those on my list. Maybe you've Please. heard of the Beatles. <laughs> Please, I already got one. Um, I struggled between putting um, Johnny Cash or George Harrison number one, but George has a, just a, a slightly richer, you know, longer history. Yeah, and I think the work is ultimately better too. So um, George Harrison, as soon as the Beatles broke up, mercifully, and uh, oh, George Harrison's my favorite Beatle as well. So there you go. Oh well. Yeah, the underrated quiet one. That's that's the kind of guy I go for. Uh, 
he uh, did his massive... He's not as dreamy as Paul, though, Jake, let's be honest. Yeah, but Paul's such a... Anyway, go on. <laughs> I don't like Paul very much. Oh, well... All right. I don't know. Uh, George I don't know Harrison... I haven't given it any thought. George Harrison has the distinction of releasing the very best post-Beatles solo album by a former Beatle. Um, All Things Must Pass in 1970 or 71. I think it's 71. Um, It featured a couple Bob songs on it, uh, most notably If Not For You, which we've discussed before. Um, Then Harrison and Dylan kind of went on a fruitful collaboration streak there where they played together. George Harrison was on a couple of Bob's albums. um, And... uh, Bob played on the concert for Bangladesh, which was organized by George Harrison. And then, of course, in the late 80s, they hooked up again for the Traveling Wilburys, which was a kind of a... It seems preordained, because all those guys were so big, and it was one of the first like weird 80s supergroups that started popping Uh up. Um, But I guess they were kind of a surprise success. They they had like big hits and stuff like that. Together. Super group of all super groups. They though. are. I know. I mean, but who, it, who all was in that? Let's just lay that down really quick. Okay, so there's George Harrison. There's yeah. Roy Orbison. There's yeah. Tom Petty. Yeah. There's Bob Dylan, and right. there's Jeff Lynne, who is the smallest name of the group, but one of the most influential producers. He was in. Um, he was in the Cars, I think. Okay. And then he ended up producing Tom Petty's biggest albums in the late 80s, early 90s. So he had kind of a sound. Pretty monster collaboration there. Big monster, indeed. And it was really fun. Their first album is a classic. I love it. Um, They named their second album Volume 3, even though there was no Volume 2, which is kind of a fun (laughs) fact. Good one, guys. Oh, they're so cheeky. That was after Roy Orbison had passed away. Um, So, yeah, I just don't know what else to say about it except for they... uh, Two of the biggest rock stars in the whole world. They seem to just—they seem to actually be friends. I'm not sure Bob Dylan had actual friends um, throughout his career, but they—they they seem to be all right with each other. They—they they shared some—they shared some privacy things. I think that they—they they both like to be private people, and so maybe they understood each other on that level. But come on, George. Yeah, exactly. Anytime I can talk about George Harrison, it's a—it's a plus. <laughs> all right, hit us with number one. Number one. Uh, no drum roll necessary. All right. Is Mr. Brian Eno. Uh, yes. Oh, No Brian. surprises there for you anyway. But for my audience, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I'm also a giant Brian Eno fan. Like, we've joked that if we ever do another Versus podcast after uh, Boy vs. Dylan wraps up, I want mine to be Eno. And I was anyway, not, though, I was not joking really... when I said I would fall asleep the entire time. Well, only there was ambient music. <laughs> And that's kind of part of the point. So right, exactly. Thanks. Uh, so Eno collaborated with Bowie on what I personally, many people consider his best period. I consider my best period. No, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea. But in the '77 through '79 period, there's a it's called the Berlin Trilogy, which is really kind of an inaccurate name for a variety of reasons. One, only one of the albums was actually recorded entirely in Berlin. One of the ones recorded even at, even at all in Berlin. Um, but those albums are Low, Heroes, and Lodger. Mm-hmm. Um, not coincidentally, the ones that are being turned into symphonies by uh, Phil Plass. Yes. Uh, Low and Heroes have a lot in common. Lodger's a very different, al- and very different album. just so happens to have Eno on it also. Uh, they're very avant-garde, very influential for the time period. Bowie did some kind of ambient tracks on Low and Heroes. Lodger has kind of a world music feel that was 
big for the, you know, kind of important for the time period. Uh, they came back together in 1995 for Outside, which we also just mentioned in reference to Trent Reznor. Yep. Furthermore, Brian, you know, co-wrote I'm Afraid of Americans, which also came up with Trent Reznor. Oh, I didn't um, know that. So they were involved. With, I'm Afraid of Americans came out of the Outside sessions. It just okay. didn't make it onto Outside. Bowie re-recorded it and changed it up for uh, Earthling in 1997. I'm afraid so of it. So it really just helped Bowie to move into his next period and establish some really creative avant-garde credentials, really doing something different stuff that he hadn't done before. And I consider Low as my personal favorite Bowie yeah. album. Heroes and Lodger both make the top ten as mm-hmm. well. Um, so there's just a lot there and some really amazing collaborations, in my opinion. The two remained friends for Bowie's and rest of his life. I think it kind of fell out in and out. They were talking about uh, collaborating again okay. when Bowie died, which who knows if it would have actually happened because Bowie talked to a lot of people about a lot of things and a lot of things just didn't happen. Right. But they'd always talked about making another, making a follow-up to Outside. It was really supposed to be three different albums and it didn't happen. So there you go. Wow. Mr. Brian Eno. Congratulations. Wow. That's Number- right. Oh, should note really quickly, it's widely believed that Brian Eno produced Low Heroes and Launder. He did not. He played on them, but Tony Visconti uh, produced them. Just okay. want to throw that out there. Everyone was just burning down the internet trying to figure that out just now. They're just trying to figure it out. Well, they were like, they're oh. not the internet. They're just, they're just assuming that they already know and not bothering to look it up. That's Come on. Problem. Come on, guys. Come on. Come on, guys. All right, All right so, this has been a long, yeah. long podcast. Yes, it sure Celebratory has. Celebratory 10th episode. Whew. It won't be this long next Blowing it out. Next episode, we're going back to a more normal format with our guys bare knuckling it against each other to see who wins. Taking on the inauspicious year of 1994 yep. to see what happens. Middling. I don't know who's going to win. At best. I don't know what either. I don't either. It, 1984. Well, it's a quiet year for both of them, so we'll is. see. we got to get some of these quiet years in here, though, too. We sure do. And uh, before we go, Chaz, I just want to say something nice about you. I uh, I consider you in the top ten of my brothers. You're in the t- you're in the top. You're definitely in the top. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey. I don't consider you in the top ten of my brothers, and there's like two. Wow, man, that was I said something nice. You said, you said <laughs> something you, mean. I am Charlie, and I like Bowie. I'm Jake, and I still love Dylan, even after talking about him for 73 minutes. Goodbye. (laughs) So long.